Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. Uh, we have Drew here with us, and I'm really excited to have Drew because we have not yet talked about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu on this podcast. And we would, would we really be a podcast without talking about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? But not only that, um, he is my brother-in-law's coach at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So uh, a family friend and someone that my brother-in-law really looks up to. And I really look up to my brother-in-law. So ipso facto. Um, Drew, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. And to sort of give a quick little rundown for your listeners, uh, not only am I a coach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I actually own the academy. So I'm a, a small business owner here in Alberta, in a very small part of Alberta in Black Falls, which is like 10 minutes off of Red Deer. It's, it's very small, but it's, it's a good tight-knit community. I've been running this gym here for a little over two years. Um on top of that, though, uh, my story is, is a little bit more strange than just your average gym owner because I not only got into the art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just like anybody would just to have some fun and get some self-defense, but it ended up taking a strange turn about halfway through my training up to this point where I started making memes about it online through Instagram. And that part of my jiu-jitsu story i guess exploded it exploded to the point that um strangely enough oddly enough some guy in black falls alberta actually has and runs the largest bjj meme page on planet earth yeah so, yeah <laughs> which is just an incredible so canadian bad. story right it's like yeah. what are we capable of we're, we're capable of so much more than we imagined and it doesn't matter where we are like mm -hmm. I, I just for the listeners who don't know uh, I was born in Lacombe and raised in Black Falls, so this is obviously a oh an perfect. Area that's I live in Lacombe, incredibly close to my heart, and um, the the fact that a uh, a co uh, Albertan who, from Black Falls has been able to achieve this is just as as uh, we always say on the Canadian story, we need to sing the praises of Canadians more and talk more about the successes. And I'm just happy to have Drew, who's not only a Canadian but he's from my hometown. And he's just killing it. So, sorry, go ahead. Drew. You want to hear something crazy, though, speaking about Lacombe, is of all the places in Alberta, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is still, like, it's a, when I started into it in 2007, it was the Wild West. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of options for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu up here. But the one person, the first person who got a black belt in all of Alberta was from Lacombe. Really? He got it in 2001. He flew down to Brazil and trained there for, like, three years to get it. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so you have you so you have this global following. Mm -hmm. uh, would you want to talk a little bit about your podcast too? Because I find that incredibly interesting. Sure. Yeah. Like I've done a few podcasts before. This is the first one I've done in a while. It's a solo podcast. I had one with a um, co-host for a while, and then got off that one, started this this solo one. And to be honest. Um, I just like talking and I like talking about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and you put the two things together and I basically just ramble on about the two things combined. So I got uh, guests that I bring on from all over the world that are tied into the scene somehow. I've even got uh, like some of my close friends from around here that I talk to that just have like uh, a cool take on the thing. And yeah, if you guys are interested in learning about it, we have like we talk about everything in life, but there's certain episodes that really focuses on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, from like the philosophical side to the historical side to the, um, you know, the mental fortitude side to, you know, every, every aspect of it is kind of what it is. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. It's called, the, it's, it's called the Because Jitsu podcast. I forgot to plug go, Sorry. It. Yes. Yes. The, because I'll just repeat that. The Because uh, Jiu-Jitsu podcast. Negative. And, because uh, Jiu-Jitsu. Because Jitsu, without the oh, Jew. Sorry, because Jitsu. <laughs> and I that's not a racial that. thing. It's spelled different. <laughs> right, right. Um, so tell us a little bit about what got you into Brazilian Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. What what uh, like what do you love about it? Well, first, how about I describe what it is for your listeners? Because this oh, yeah, is something yeah. that I'll still run into everywhere I go. Is you say Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and you might as well just speak a foreign language to people. Right, like, true, is, true. Is that that's a martial art? Is that like karate? But um, Basically, what it is, is if you watch MMA, it's probably the easiest thing to understand is everything that happens on the ground outside of the punching and kicking is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So it's grappling, it's uh, wrestling with the idea and objective to control and submit your opponent with either joke, uh, joint locks or chokes. 
Yes, and uh, it is considered the number one form of fighting in the world because, uh, from what I've been told, um, there was the Gracie family came along and essentially dominated all fighting in the UFC with this form of of, uh, combat. Yeah, they did a really good marketing run from about 1917 to 1994. So they had they invented their style, which was at the time called Gracie Jiu-Jitsu at the turn of the century. They took a bunch of stuff they learned from judo that was crossing the from Japan over to Brazil back uh, when a lot of Japanese immigrants were coming over. Um, then they they kind of focused, they hyper-focused on the ground portion of judo back then. Nowadays, you think of judo like Olympic judo, you think of just throwing people. That's basically all it is because the Japanese started hyper-focusing on the throws, the standing uh, jujitsu stuff, whereas um, the Gracies focused very heavily on the ground stuff, which is what we know now as Brazilian jujitsu. So they um, not only had like the run of the place when it hit the ground, they were just head and shoulders above everybody of the time between that time period, because nobody really focused on it like they did. And so they invented the UFC. If you knew that or not, the very oh, first I did, I UFCs, know I didn't know. yeah, the very first UFCs were started by Hori and Gracie, and it was meant as a marketing ploy to help promote Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the USA. So it was like an open call, and this was something that they did down in Brazil before they ever brought it to the US. They did these things called Gracie challenges, where they would challenge any other style of martial art to come and fight them, full on fight them, and if they could beat them, then their style was greater, and they just dominated everybody because. Not just because they could avoid punches and kicks, but because they could tie a guy up so close and so fast and drag it down to the ground, just drown them on the ground because they had no semblance of what to do if they didn't have range to punch and kick. So they dominated down Brazil with that and decided to move the marketing uh, up to the US where they started the UFC. And it was exactly that. It was style versus style at the beginning. There was the karate guy. There was the sumo guy. There was the kickboxer. You know, there was a Art Jimerson came in with one boxing glove on one hand. It was it was kind of a freak show, to be honest. But <laughs> it, it did exactly... The Wild West of fighting, right? Yeah, 100%. But it did exactly what they wanted it to do is uh, Hoist Gracie, who was 170 pounds, six foot three, like skinny boy, um, soaking wet 170, came in and just demolished these muscle boys that didn't know what to do on the ground for like four UFCs in a row. And that just kind of sparked this explosion, this revolution of uh, martial arts in the U S where we're like, every style was like, we have to understand what's happening here. Cause obviously we suck at this. So to clarify, to clarify, these guys were winning fights without striking because there's no striking in uh, BJJ, correct? Um, yes, yes, and no. So striking was allowed in the UFC. So they would strike from dominant positions, but they don't. They didn't rely on it. You would never see them trying to hit like knockout strikes on the on the feet. But if they had a guy in like if they pinned him on the ground from side control or mount a dominant position, they'd, they'd smack him around a little bit, but generally just to get them to do a, to, to make a mistake, to make their arms loose for arm bars or to turn their back and choke them. But that was, that's typically part of Gracie Jiu Jitsu, which is the original form of, of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, where it was meant as a self-defense style. There is like punches and kicks, but they're, they're only meant as like distractionary things to get the grappling done. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I want to go into a bit of, the philosophy of mm-hmm. um, jujitsu and and what it is about this particular style that seems to so um, bring enlightenment to people's lives. So my one of my best friends is a guy named Matt Enz, and when he first started uh, jujitsu, it just transformed his whole approach to life. And he talks about that being kind of the beginning of of his spiritual journey, in a sense, to 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 mastery of self. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I and Chris has said similar things. He said chess makes him better at jujitsu, and jujitsu makes him better at chess. But both make him a better person. You're the one who had, who kind of brought him into this. So I would I would like to hear more about how, that. I think the listeners will be very interested in that because uh, our listeners are very interested in uh, in that idea of of self conquering. Yeah. Okay. Well. Jiu-Jitsu is a fantastic way to discover more about yourself because there's things that are going to happen that you've only got an idea in your head about before you actually do them. So there's this thing that happens when you get onto the mats and you start sparring with somebody 
And it's a very, very honest transaction that happens. So no matter how superhero you think you are in your head, you're about to find out exactly how superhero you are against a resisting opponent who knows more than you do. So uh, there's a serious ego check that happens for every new student that comes in here. Whether they thought they were the shit or not, they're going to find out that they're not. And that <laughs> it's something that doesn't stop as you keep training, too. It's like you'll talk to Chris. He's been in it for a couple of years now. He's got a blue belt, which is, you know, it's it's a symbol that he knows what he's doing at this point. And he'll still get ego checked uh, every class, every second class, because, you know, something didn't work for him that used to. And, you know, this guy got the best of me this time and I had to tap and it's a, a constant reminder of um, not only minor shortcomings, but also a little bit of uh, progression. You'll start to see like, okay, I did better this class. And it is, like I said, just very honest. You can't, they, they say that there's no lies on the mats because you either choked the guy or you got choked. There's really no in between. It's kind of a zero sum game, but it's a zero sum game of respect because you're not actually trying to hurt the other person necessarily you're trying to make them submit yeah one of the nicknames for brazilian jiu-jitsu is uh, art suave which means a gentle art um and that is kind of tongue-in-cheek because it's pretty violent <laughs> but it's not mm. violent in like the bludgeoning battering kind of violence it is um controlling somebody against their will which is, again, like a serious ego check, because if you don't want to be held down and you can't help but be held down, like that's something you've got to address. And it's something that happens all the time. So, yeah, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu really does um, make you realize where you're at and try to strive to get better. I want to dig into this more. Describe to me what it's like to have your ego checked in that way, how you've seen students react to that. and. Also, I mean, I completely agree, but I want you in your words, what is the benefit of that in life? Sure. Yeah. So I could think back when I was first starting, I have vivid memories of over 14 years ago about almost nothing else from that year except training, because it is the hardest thing when you first start, because you are by far the worst that you'll ever be at this thing. So like every class is rough. You're just, you're getting shit kicked every class. Um, and I remember doing my first tournament. I did it like three weeks into training, way too fast. I just jumped in. I thought it'd be cool. And not only did I get tapped out in the first round, but the second round, I cardio tapped by puking all over the mats and I sort of DQ'd oh, myself. No. <laughs> it was not a good oh, look. No. <laughs> uh, no. Um, that'll check but, your ego. Oh, yeah, what, what it did. Ego. What it did is I didn't sleep that night. I was so disappointed in myself and running through everything back in my head. And I remember typing out like a 14 paragraph essay to my instructor via email and sending it to him telling about uh, how much I'm going to work on this stuff and maybe I should try this. Stuff. And it's like, I don't know if he read it or not, but the next class he's like, it's okay. This is normal. Like you'll get better. Yeah. It's, don't, don't worry about it, kind of thing. Um, you're you're utterly humiliated. He's like, oh you're yeah, you're gonna be humiliated. That's how it works. But this kind of thing will happen class to class too. And I remember it in certain classes. I can remember exactly the the interaction that happened a decade ago with a student that just like crushed me one round and it like demoralized me because I thought I was getting better. And then like, again, I just lose sleep thinking about how all the stupid mistakes I made and I'm never going to do that again. And yeah, it, it does, uh, it really gets in your brain, but what if, what I find it does is the students that stick around, which isn't everybody, because a lot of people can't take that, but the, the ones that stick around are the type that are the hard nose grinding, go getter, not going to take no for an answer kind of people. And because of that, the, the people that do jujitsu that you're going to run into, that is part of why they're not only successful in life, but have the ability to find success in unsuccessful situations, which is uh, going to play into later in our story as we keep talking, especially going into politics yes, uh, around yes. Alberta. But like it is something that's foundational to my own mentality, which wasn't really there before I started training. I could tell you that I'm not the same person mentally uh, before I started training to now. And I attribute almost all of that to just constantly day in, day out, having to survive hardship and get better or, or die, you know, you got to get right, better. Right. 
like, I mean, that's the interesting thing that I always think about with uh, jujitsu is if you, if you like, you could be killed, like it's lit or an arm, a limb broken. It's like that. The tap out is the admission that, okay, you could kill me. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. Yeah. That's when you listen to Joe Rogan talk about, he talks about kills. Like when you get somebody in a choke, you got them in a kill. If you wanted to, you could end their life. And they're admitting that. And this is part of the honesty. The tap is against all of their best efforts, them admitting that you won. Like you can't get more honest than that. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and I think, uh, I think it gets exciting in the chess sense too, because it makes you deal with reality. Yes. On reality's terms, right? So much of our lives are lived in these crazy delusions of grandeur or like these, or maybe a victimhood mindset. But when you, when you do something like jujitsu, you're just dealing with pure raw reality. There's nothing else. You're an animal at that point. Not, not, not an animal. You're a human, but like you're interacting with reality at its most raw. That's right. You're, you're able to express your best version of yourself within that realm. And if your best wasn't good enough, then you got to get better. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So what do you feel are the natural proclivities in people? So I like what you said about grinding and like perseverance and all that kind of stuff. What do you think are the natural proclivities in a person that would make them good at jujitsu? Well, I mean, there's certain things uh, like athletic body types and stuff that definitely helps, but it really does come down to the mind. Like I've had people that have come from other sports that were successful in other sports, like they were rock climbers and mountain bikers and like athletic people, like seriously athletic people that aren't used to being the nail so much. Like you have to understand to go between white belt and blue belt is on average, like a two or three year experience of being the lowest rank. And most of the time, just being on solid defense, like it takes over a year generally before you can even start playing around with offense, because you're just trying not to get crushed, not to get squished, not to get choked over and over and over. And I mean, it takes a certain type of person, or at least you have to become a certain type of person to be able to weather that. And you get to, you get the choice too. at any given time. You can choose not to come back. The attrition rate is huge in jujitsu. Most people quit before blue belt. And it is those people that stick around again, that are going to prove themselves through the fire that they have what it takes to, you know, survive that type of attrition. So uh, I know that you're also the coach for my uh, my nephew Brant, who I love dearly. And um, what is it? What do you see in kids? What does it teach kids? Because I've always thought, like I say this to uh, my brother, well, I say this to Chris all the time. I say, like I'm amazed by Brant. I think he's an absolutely exceptional kid. Of course, I would. But um, no, you know, you're right. He's a little murderer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's a killer. Yeah, he is a killer. But. Well, but um, what do you think it would do for kids? Because uh, my my friend Matt that I was just mentioning, he has his son Asher, who's my godson in, in jujitsu as well. What do you think it trains in the in the child's mind? Because that's a very different than an adult coming in and having to confront that. If, if you're confronting that as a kid, you haven't dealt with the same kind of ego building that happens if you're like coming in at my age, say. Mm -hmm. Well, this is something that the martial arts in general have boasted for a very long time, and it's, it's not wrong, and it, I'll get into it, but I feel it's even more true for jiu-jitsu than most martial arts, is that it builds confidence. So the confidence that if you ever needed to, if against uh, your better judgment, you ended up in an alteration where physical violence was about to happen or it was happening. This is something that suddenly isn't alien to you. You don't have to figure it out on the fly. In fact, a lot of these things uh, come in automatic at that point. And like, look, we are going full force with each other under these, you know, specific rules. There's no punching or kicking in my gym uh, while we're rolling. But if there was, I mean, you would be fine because you're the one that's getting the dominant position, right? That's that's the idea is you're in control of the situation, which gives kids a serious confidence boost that if they ever needed it, they have this ability. And what I was going to say that I believe jujitsu is a little more than most martial arts, not all martial arts. I think there's some other honest martial arts out there as well. But a lot of the traditional martial arts is it's a 
a real confidence. It's not a false confidence. There's cer certain styles of martial arts where there's no touch sparring, where you pull your punches and, you know, I would have got you, but I've never actually hit somebody before. And then you have to be re rely on that when somebody's hitting you, some bully's trying to pick on you. You know, uh, this is something where you absolutely sure if you get hit in the head you're going to tie this guy up pull him down dominate him from a position until a teacher gets there or a friend can separate you know like it is uh, a real confidence boost i love i love that and and speaking of confidence i i, I want to go into what's happening in alberta and uh, but not just alberta canada this is the canadian story i mean all, ontario is way worse than we are here Sure is. I think it sure is. <laughs> oh my goodness. A stay at home order. I can't even imagine. Like literally <laughs> go. Not, you may not leave your home. Anyway, another one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I think that this is happening because we are led by timid people, people who lack confidence. And so when confronted with a difficult decision, they become, uh, they become afraid. And in that, and in acting out of fear, they actually end up hurting way more people than than they would otherwise because because the people who are being hurt are being hurt by their decision but it's not a direct correlation right it's it's a secondary pain so you are a business owner in this province uh you are an entrepreneur like myself and like chris um we are the most hurt by this of of any class of people and we are also uh, and i'm going to uh, i'm going to say this boldly the cornerstone of an economy for sure uh, without the innovation of entrepreneurs economy is uh, economy stagnate i want your perspective on what's happening and then i want to go into why we think it's wrong and then hopefully and normally on the podcast i know to listeners we're not negative without a solution so we will provide a solution but we're going to be fairly negative for a little bit here <laughs> yeah i i kind of gave you guys a heads up that if you're looking for a happy go lucky let's go canada kind of raw raw situation that's probably not the time for it but no, I, no, I feel I like we you. have I, I don't we disagree have to, with you at all yeah, yeah we have yeah. to be honest with the times too but before i get to the um my i guess political take on what's going on right now i want to talk to the timidity that you had just mentioned with the leaders mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. How many people do you know or interact with who are not timid people, people that have like war experience, people that are cops, people that have to deal with actual hardship um, in very serious matters that that would react in the way that our politicians do? None. I, none. I, so I grew up as a roofer um, and I love roofers. I think they're wonderful people, but like they're a, a, they're the sailors of the modern world. They're a very violent heavy drinking, hardworking. They're mm -hmm. my people. They're the kind of people that I love. I, I still do some roofing just because I love it. Uh, and I guess it would be my, in a sense, jujitsu, right? It's hard work. It's, it's, and you're, and you're in danger, right? Mm. A lot of people don't even want to climb up on a roof. No, right. They're, they're terrified of the idea of heights. Whereas roofers are just climbing up. Like I, they're like sailors. That's what I mean. They're like climbing the mast. Um, so I agree. And, and I look at these roofers and yeah, maybe some of them have drug problems or whatever. And I'm like, these are more men than the people leading our, leading our. Exactly. Right what, I mean, I'm not going to speak to whatever type of, uh, strategic mind it takes to be a good politician, but for somebody who is an actual leader, who people's lives rely on to be, to make like hard decisions when it counts, I don't see that in our leadership anywhere. I don't know anybody who has that type of background that is in a serious position of power right now. And I think if they were, they wouldn't be making the the decisions that they do. And then, I mean, uh, we can look in other places in the world. And this is a really interesting thing that I've been doing lately is we've got 2020 behind us as like a, a test of what happened. We've got a, a full case study now. We can look at a full year from January to December during this uh, pandemic, how it happened all throughout the world. And you can see every single place reacts differently to the exact same thing. That should be interesting to people who are trying to see, like, what were the outcomes of those different reactions? And what's strange is that some of the worst reactions were the places with the hardest lockdowns. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and with the worst results. For sure. And right? I mean, yeah. everybody talks about the, the, I guess the offshoot effects of lockdowns outside of, um, you know, just depression, but uh, suicides, uh, mental instability, domestic abuse, 
have risen across the board in ways that I don't think are even metrically trackable. Like you can't even track yeah. how many suicides there are. They don't actually even track them uh, accurately. They just come up, they come out and pick up a dead body. I know this because I, I train students who are in that field and they're like, you know, we just get a call. We pick up a dead body and send it to the morgue. It doesn't get tracked as a suicide. So we don't even know how many people have taken their own lives during this, but we do know through, this is the metric that people have been using is the calls to self-help and suicide hotlines have spiked dramatically. And those have a direct correlation to both when, uh, mental well-being as well as unfortunately suicide. So this the lockdowns, which again, you've got uh, one person here in Ontario, we got two people here in Alberta. Um, they not only have not shown that they actually deal with the problem to any great extent, it's just sort of like pushing it on to another day where we're going to do the same thing later. But you know, during- this is our third one third one. And it's obviously hasn't worked the first time, obviously didn't work the second time. So why are we doing this a third time? How many times do we have to do this in a row before we get it through our mind that maybe this isn't the actual solution? And I remember during the first lockdown that happened in March of 2020 and lasted here in Alberta until uh, sometime in June. And I remember thinking, okay, they did it. They found out it didn't work. They're going to lift the restrictions. And there's no chance that they would do this again. The, the economy has been hit so hard that they had their one try at this. Thankfully, at least now I can get my business back open. And, and you know, we're going to have to figure this out a different way with, you know, uh, social distancing and vaccines. Maybe more targeted and like, to like the old and the vulnerable. Like, absolutely. I've been saying this forever. I'm like, we sent $2,000 checks to people so they didn't have to work. If we'd taken that money and just, poured it into defending the vulnerable and let everyone else continue living their lives. Like that seems like a very common sense, clear solution. And you know, what's what's funny, but not funny is that, like I was saying, there are case studies from around the world of places that did that. And they could have used those in real time and been like, look, these are the results that are happening in X country over here. And it's, you know, at least negligible, if not better results than the lockdowns. So why do we keep coming back to this thing that is clearly detrimental for people on a personal level and absolutely demolishing your own economy in a way that, look, you can't regrow an economy in a year. This shit that is happening now is going to echo through the ages. It's going to affect my children when they're trying to get jobs. This isn't like, we're just going to play around and see what happens kind of shit. No, no. I've So in Alberta, because I'm an Ontario guy, mm -hmm. um, this third lockdown, um, I would say... Like the first lockdown, I think a lot of people were on board, you know, even myself included, we sure. didn't, we didn't know. And so it's like, okay, exactly. we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to try this. And then we did it. And there was a lot of speculation as to like what worked and what didn't. Um, and then there was a second lockdown and I was like, okay, I'm not really into this, but you know, we're trying it again. We're like, the data is in at this point. Yep. And I feel like now that we are in a third one, the, the, the scales have shifted in the sense that there used to be a lot of people in favor. And mm -hmm. now I feel like the majority are very much against it in Ontario, at least that's, that's the sense I get kind of just like boots on the ground. The, the, talking the thing to is, people. Zach, that's only the case outside of Toronto. Yeah. Well, Toronto is a weird city, but my question terrible, is terrible place. <laughs> my qu yeah, I don't I don't like it at all. The the <laughs> J the Jays are cool and the Leafs are are all right, but everything else is weird to me. Um, I heard it's the center of the universe to everyone that comes from Ontario. They told me that. Yeah. Oh no no no! <laughs> everyone everyone hates Toronto outside of Toronto. That that is very accurate. But my question is, I feel like the 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 public opinion has shifted on this third lockdown in Ontario. Do you find where do you where do you think the public opinion stands in Alberta? Do you see a similar sort of sort of situation? Well, this is a thing and and part of the problem of the age, and I think that it is absolutely a contributing factor to why um, I guess the social discourse and outrage is so hard to actually realistically gauge is because most of what you see comes through social media. Even the news that you see comes through social media. And that stuff is so um algorithmically broken down to what you want to hear 
that it's hard to give an objective opinion. I've got a brother and sister-in-law who are absolutely on the other side of the fence. They've been in their house the whole time and they're fine with it. They'll stay as long as they need to. They got jobs that aren't being affected. They're right. making great yep. income. They have one kid. Um, and look, they're kind of introverts to begin with. So this is kind of like business as usual. And they don't understand why everybody's getting upset. On the other side, on where I'm at, I have been able to, I've been allowed, check that word. I've been allowed to make an income in my own business for four out of the last 13 months. I don't know how many people have nine months worth of like bills ready to be paid in the bank account because I sure didn't. I had a couple and they, they were gone immediately, you know, hoping for this two week lockdown to pass. Oh Yeah. (laughs) flatten the curve everyone remember that just give us three weeks we'll flatten the curve and everything will be all right that was over a year ago Mm. that was a year ago imagine a sport that moves the goalpost so often oh imagine anything this is the thing oh this is the uh it makes me so angry because it is this timid men it's timid men who who refuse to make hard decisions that would reflect badly on them and instead are punishing and harming others purely to avoid taking responsibility for essentially they will probably end up resulting in the death of a few old people. Mm-hmm. It will happen, right? If if, yeah. they, if they leave it open and they are willing to ruin the lives of Everyone. tens of thousands of people, ten, hundreds of thousands of people just to not have any blood on their hands. Well, then you shouldn't be a leader. You should yeah. not be a leader. If you, if, if you can't take responsibility. Yeah, I agree. They, you were elected to represent the will of the people. And like you were saying, and I, I, I'll sort of amend my previous statement about uh, gauging stuff from social media, because I talk to people day to day, right? Um, and pretty much across the board, everybody around here is like, we're over this shit. We were over this shit back in the summer. Like, why is this still happening? We're so far beyond this. Nobody, like, I understand that this podcast is, is how great Canada is, but I've never met such proud Canadians that have been so disappointed with their own country and leadership in my entire life. Sure. Well, and that's that's why it, uh, this is important. And actually, we had uh, Roman Baber on the podcast who was kicked out of the Ontario PC caucus for condemning the lockdowns. And uh, he ha- he did a great job of outlining how ridiculous all of this is. Uh, so we, we're very much, I'm, and, and Zach, Zach and I are very much on your side on this. And there. The thing is, um, this is the part of Canada that's not great. I mean, we have we have a beautiful country. We more reason we have lots of opportunity. We are the most equal in terms of opportunity country. I argue in the world, you can truly advance here if you want to, if you work hard. Generally speaking, but all of this is being taken away from us by these authoritarian, and the worst part is mostly conservative politicians. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when did freedom stop mattering? And and I have all and and you know what it is, it's our healthcare system. Go right? on, tell it me is, more about that. It is the fact that we have that, that we have a monopolistic healthcare system. There's all there's only it's single payer healthcare, right? So basically, it's a monopoly on healthcare. And what's happened is the technocratic healthcare professionals and 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 understand a doctor's job is to save as many lives as possible. Right. It's their it's their sworn Hippocratic oath. It's their mandate, yeah. Right? That's at the granular level, though. They're not the lawmakers, right? Well, well, that's the problem, right? Is the lawmakers are cowards, and they say to the experts, "What should we do to save as many?" Lives? And what are the experts going to say? Well, if you shut down, you'll save these lives from COVID. Yeah, but you know they, what's they funny? are not the lawmakers, and the truth of the matter is, everything is not about health. Right? Yeah, there's this. There's economics. Absolutely. I was going to say, this is a, a classic meme trope in Brazilian jiu-jitsu memes where you don't listen to what the doctor says because the doctor always tells you to quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, back, my back hurts. My elbow hurts. I blew my knee. It's like, well, you probably shouldn't do that anymore. It's like, well, that's not an option. Tell me what no. else I got. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. It's, and, and from their perspective, it's like, well, don't get hurt anymore. Well, yeah. maybe getting hurt is what makes you strong. Mm-hmm. Or it comes from doing what you love. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 And so my my whole theory on this is, is that it's cowardice on, on the part of the lawmakers or, and even worse, um, cowardice on the part of the population earlier, like particularly in Ontario 
for a while, Doug Ford was only going up in popularity every time he did a lockdown. And here's why. In places like Manitoba and Ontario, over 50% of the population work for the government. What? Over 50? Over 50. I didn't know that. Uh, In Manitoba, for sure, it might might only be like 40. But think about it. Teachers, nurses, police officers. um, And then you got bureaucrats. There are 100,000... More than a hundred thousand uh, federal public servants in Ottawa. Ten percent of the entire population, men, women, and children in Ottawa, work for the federal government, right? Yeah. And then you have Queens Park in Toronto. But not only that, like I said, you have teachers, nurses, police officers, firemen, um, and then you have Ontario Hydro. All of this is government, right? So, so no matter what happens, you're going to keep your paycheck, right? And what is the end result? And this is what bothers me more than anything is so we've got to a point where we are bleeding the people who pay these people dry. We're killing them. We're killing because everyone's like, oh, the government is investing in this. No, the government's spending our money, our money to do things. And anyone who works for the government, I'm sorry, you work for us, the people who, who pay you. That's the idea. That's the whole idea of the government, right? It's we're, well, we're it's looking for people. To... We, we, we're in this. Um, we're in, we're we're in a place where they outnumber us, and now we are there. We're their their serfs. We're the peasants that they can just drain of resources. Uh, and and look, think about it this way. Uh, and people get are like, oh, taxes are good. I'm like, they tax you when you're born. They tax you when you get married. They tax you when you die. They tax you when you make money. They ta- tax you when you spend money. They tax you when you invest money. Like it, every, they're they're just they're just trying to take take take. And I think I think it's time that uh, we kind of rise up and we need to say, hey, look, l- let's remember how economies work. You and Greece, people just don't pay taxes anymore. Really? When did they that happen? Oh, they've been doing it for decades. Okay. And this is why Greece is in such bad shape <laughs> from a government perspective, right? Because it's like, but I'm I'm. We need a rebellion, right? We need we need we need people saying enough is enough. This government doesn't represent me, and I will no longer abide by their rules until they begin to represent at least at least my charter values. Yeah, none of this is charter. None yeah. of this is charter. Let's speak to that for a second. So my entire life growing up in Canada, I've lived my entire life in Canada. I've been very proud to be a Canadian. In fact, I have a lot of friends that are from the U.S. that I would have nonstop debates about why Canada is better than the U.S. all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, and I always felt like I won those debates because it was an easy one to win. What I didn't realize until the God blessed year of 2020 is that there exists a switch that our our leaders have the ability to switch on that switches off our rights as Canadians. I didn't understand that that was a thing. They, they can do this thing called emergency power where all of a sudden they can contravene the charter of rights and freedoms. When was that ever allowed? And, and now this is the thing is they've been flipping that switch back and forth and back and forth. We're on our third lockdown where they keep contravening our rights as fucking first world individuals in Canada. Oh, and it's so, it's absurd, right? Because they're like, you're not allowed to get sick. But what if, I, what if I'm okay with getting sick, right? Exactly. What if, what if, what if, what if I would prefer to risk getting sick and live my life however I fucking please, right? To your telling me how I have to live. Apparently not an option. Well, I, I, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The emperor has no clothes. So there's a great line in Auden, right, where where he says, "All I have is a voice, a voice to undo the folded lie, the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain, the lie of authority, whose buildings scrape the sky." Authority, the the state has no authority except for what we all agree it has. Mm-hmm. So if we are all, if we all get together and say, "Nope, we're not obeying this anymore," we are no longer going to listen to That's your right. to to your crazy authority then what are they going to do? There's not enough police officers. There's just not. And those people are the ones that are on your side anyways. Yes. I know. Train those people and they don't give a shit about COVID. They, they would rather live their lives. And to be honest, they've got bigger things to worry about than 
trying to see if a business is open during COVID. You know, they've got actual criminals to deal with. Yeah. I know I know police officers and I've had conversations with them about it and they, they've said, we don't, like we don't, we're not handing out fines. Yep. We don't respond to those calls. We don't track those people down mm -hmm. because we have actual crime to think about. Exactly. They're already understaffed and expected to stop the meth heads and crack lords of the, of the world. But now we're supposed to be sending them out to like a hairstylist because they didn't wear a mask while they were cutting some kid's hair. <laughs> it's so but, brutal. But you know what? One of the things that has been absurd, and I don't know if you've seen this, Drew or Zach, but I have, is the level of power that retail workers now think that they have to control what you do and they love it and I, and I don't have a problem with retail but like we're talking about people who've never had any power in their life and suddenly they they have to they could get to tell you how you have to be at any given moment yeah it's it's absurd but it's happening when did the walmart greeter become the principal <laughs> <laughs> The world is flipped on its head. Yeah. The world is flipped on its head. You know, to go back to what you're talking about, these all of these apparently 50% from Manitoba to uh, Ontario of public. So Ontario, I, I, I want to correct myself on that. I'm not positive, but it is. I know it's over 50% of Manitoba. You know what? Two out of three statistics are made up on the spot. So I'm just going to take it <laughs> as it is. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, but to go back to that, there's, I've, Man, I've told so many people around here that understands like my financial situation and the the duress that we're under as a business. If the people who are like in Alberta, if the Dina Hinshaws and the Jason Kennys of our world decided that they were not going to take a paycheck for as long as I don't pay, take a paycheck, I would be very curious to see how long these lockdowns end. Because once their savings are disappeared, once they don't have any more money coming in next month and their bills keep coming, all of a sudden, I bet you they're going to have a different shift in what the actual priority in real life is. Roman Roman Baber, who, who wrote the letter to Doug Ford and was fired from the caucus, put that forward. He put a bill forward suggesting that all of the politicians in Ontario should go to whatever uh, the the Serb populace one, was making basically. in Serb. Yeah. And, until the crisis was over and it was unanim unanimously voted against. Well, they would they would treat that as a joke. You're like, are they you crazy? That's joke. silly. What a moronic thing to say. It's like, you don't understand. You're talking about the people that you are forcing into this situation. This isn't like, this isn't a made up dream that we're talking about or statistics that we just sort of concocted. These are, this is me. These are real people that have a family and a mortgage and a lease payment coming up every fucking first of the month. And I'm not allowed to make money to cover them. Yeah. You're, you're, and, and then if, if you're like, well, if you go on CERB, they're like, well, look, we're giving you money. I don't want the government's money. Don't mm -hmm. give me money. Let me earn my money. Yeah, like, me too. I, I don't like, and the, the idea, that, but the problem is that like now the, there's so many people who this is the best it's ever been. Mm -hmm. they, they're not yeah. going out spending money. Their bank accounts are growing. Yeah. Saving rates have skyrocketed in North America. We're talking, there's more savings for people than there's been in decades because people aren't spending money. And, mm. and so there's this whole group of people who have not taken risks, who yeah. have not taken initiative in their life, who suddenly they're getting in, enhanced child benefit checks. They're getting each of the, each of the parents. This is the most money they've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this is the thing too. I, I want to sort of dispel a myth that's out there for people who aren't entrepreneurs. And look, I'm not talking to you like you're a different type of person, but there's a certain type of information you're not getting that I want to help fill in the blanks is that I hear this a lot online about why are these small businesses griping? They're getting nothing but handouts from the government. There's all these small business loans they keep coming out with. Why don't you just get those? Those are people that have never applied for one before. Yeah. First of all, just getting through the red tape to get the yes at the end of that is excruciating. Even if you get the yes at the end of it, say I'm, I'm applying for a $10,000 small business emergency loan. Great. I might get like a thousand or $2,000 from it. I don't get 10,000 guaranteed. In fact, I'm almost guaranteed not to. So look, if, if that's supposed to tide me over for the next three or four or five months, a thousand dollars, thanks <laughs> government of Canada, you're doing a bang up job. Like I, I could make that bringing my cans to the depot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, and you're, and you're utterly right. And not only that, um, people who become entrepreneurs don't do it 
just because it's the money. They love what they do. Like you yeah. love what you do. It's and, part of your self-worth. You're being denied. Exactly. Your meaning. The thing that brings you meaning in life is being denied you. Well, not the only thing, but you know what I mean? No, absolutely. It's something that, like, I wasn't an entrepreneur for my whole life. In fact, this is a fairly recent venture. I've been doing it for less than four years now. And in fact, I was a journeyman welder for like 15 years in the trades. And I was I was the grunt. I was a blue collar and that was fine with me. But um, until it wasn't, you know, there was a point where I started looking forward and five, 10 year plans didn't look very good to me anymore. Everything was like, well, this is the rest of my life, really. And I decided to take a, to me at that time, a very, very serious risk as a single income um, provider for a family of six to go out on my own and try to make my own money in a, in a business I'd never done that before. Um, I guess the the light at the end of the tunnel was I made it happen. You know, in the first year of my business, which is the hardest year for any business to actually make good on income, I had to build a whole student base out of thin air. You know, it's it started by eating up my savings and kind of placing the bet, uh, hedging the bet that I'm going to be able to uh, make money before my savings run out to yeah, replace yep. it. You know, that's mm-hmm. the move that entrepreneurs make. And I made oh, yes. that move. And like my wife was bite, biting her nails the whole time because there's nothing assured about that. That's a serious gamble. And if it doesn't work out, suddenly you don't have a nest egg or a job. You know? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, I made that work for me. And uh, I guess that's again comes back to the jujitsu mentality of just not giving up, even if you don't know what's going on. You'll figure it out. You have to get better. You have to improve. And at the end of that year, I was in the black. I was making money back. And uh, to give you a sense of this, that year was the year 2019. So the second oh, year oh, of no. my existence. Oh. Yeah, the moment I got in the black was 2020, and. Then we got shut down for like four months plus. Once we came back, we were allowed with like limited interaction cohorts. It was all very restricted, but at least I was allowed to make money again. I had lost 50% of my uh, student base in that time. It's to be expected. Um, I built it back up until November of 2020. I finally got back to where I was when they shut me off in March and then they, it's like being dragged off the ground to be kicked in the balls, just to be dragged off the ground to be kicked in the balls again. Like it was the exact same thing. They flipped that switch and suddenly I'm not allowed to make money anymore. And uh, I mean, not to get into the nitty gritty, but my business should have failed in January. I've been out of money that this business had made months ago, like four payments worth of bills ago. And this is, again, if if we want to come full circle on, on my strange story is where this uh, social media presence has really been my only saving grace to keep this place open. Like I'm, I'm recording from my actual Academy right now. That is still just four empty walls being paid for waiting for the chance to be able to make money for it again, that I've had to like magic hat, a new giant chunk, thousands of dollars out of thin air that didn't exist the month before and isn't going to exist the month after for four months in a row. And that's like, that speaks a, to the entrepreneurial spirit, the never give up the fuck you mentality of I'm not going down, you know? Um, and also it's, it's just, again, this is not the type of mentality you see in the politicians that are just like, just hold on. It's almost done. Uh, just, just like this well, last one, the, Kenny you know said, is, just, you know just wait till September. For, I've worked, I've worked with these guys all of my adult life. I've been working for politicians all my adult life until I finally decided to go out on my own about three years ago, actually, and, and become an entrepreneur myself. Um, and I will say this unequivocally. They have no idea how the real world works. They've been collecting a government paycheck. Jason Kenney has been collecting a government paycheck for 40 years. He doesn't even know what it's like to worry about bills. No. Right? And I think it's time that we say, you know what? You're, you aren't in charge of us. You represent us. Mm-hmm. And we don't like the representation we're getting. So we're not going to vote for you anymore. We don't, we don't care if the NDP get back in, I mean, I don't want the NDP to get back in, but at this point we need to punish this behavior. Mm-hmm. This behavior must be punished. Well, that's one thing is I, I don't expect any politicians when their term comes up for, for, you know, re-voting. Um, I don't expect any of them from 2020 to survive. They're, they've 
there was nobody that did it well. You know, they're, they've got a lot of angry people they have to answer to that are just waiting for the chance to vote. Um, what my hopes are is that we've got some politicians coming up to take their mantle that will actually do a damn good job. And you know what it's going to take for that to happen is because being a politician sucks, right? I it's bet. long hours. It's ter- Everyone's yelling at you. Everyone hates you. You know, if, if, you know, if the teachers don't hate you, then, the, you know, entrepreneurs hate you. If the nurses don't hate you, then the doctors hate you. Like it's just, it's an awful, awful job. And I, and uh, I, I, but what my dad always said, and I've, I mentioned this on the podcast once before is if all we do is demonize politicians, only demons will become politicians. So we need to start looking for people who are willing to stand up and say, I'm going to go and do the shitty thing because someone has to, someone has to muck the stalls. Right. And and it's like, it goes back to jujitsu. It's like, I'm going to go and be humiliated and I'm going to go and take the, the shit so that I can become better, but not just so I can become better so that my society can can become better so that my children have a better place to live. And and we don't have enough of those people. Um, so that's what I'm working on. But I think I think until politicians receive real consequences for these idiotic decisions, we're never gonna see improvement. So so we need to rise up. You want to hear something interesting? So because I'm in the field that I'm in, I have this unique kind of view behind the the gilded curtain of RCMP and police officers because we train them. Okay. So yeah, like they're yeah. our buddies. Um, and I got from a different gym up in Edmonton. I'm part of this, you know, gym owners group on Facebook. They're trying to, you know, figure out how everybody's making it through kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who literally hours before the Jason Kenny announcement went live, he said, guys, don't expect anything good coming from this. Cause this is from one of my RCMP buddies who just said that 50 special attack unit people were sent up to Edmonton preparing for an expected riot after the announcement. <laughs> an expected riot. <laughs> they were prepping for it. Look, they know they're in the wrong. They understand that there are people out there that are furious that this keeps going and you can't keep pretending like you're the good guy at this point. No, no, you can't. Well, we got to close it off there because I always promise my listeners we won't go over an hour, but I really enjoyed this, Drew. I hope that uh, you and I can get together just and talk more about these things. And uh, mm-hmm. and I'm really thankful for the the role you've played in my brother-in-law's life and in helping him become the man he is. Obviously, he married my sister and it makes me pretty happy that he's such a quality human being. So I know you played a big role in that. Uh, yeah. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for explaining your position. And I mean, obviously I agree with you pretty much hundred so. percent. I, I want to make sure I don't leave all your listeners on a sour note because right, it has okay, been yes, pretty, yes. pretty down uh, <laughs> on the whole thing. And look, it, a lot of this is venting, but it's because it's real. And yeah. guys, yeah. I just, I want to leave with a note of encouragement that you're, if you're out there and you're feeling these feelings and I bet you are, cause a lot of people are a, you're not alone. Um, B you know, we, we need to keep talking about it. We need to be vocal about this. Like we're doing on this podcast. We're not just doing it to vent. We're doing it to commiserate, but in a way that will garner action. Okay. So I'm not going to tell you what that means, but just keep an open mind to like your society actually cares for you. Even if the people running it don't. Ah, there it is. That's the title. That's the title. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Your society cares for you. Even if the people running it don't. Well, thanks for coming on, Drew. Uh, really appreciate it. And I hope that we can grab a beer or roll on the mats and you can t- absolutely tap me out at some point. <laughs> My pleasure, man. It was nice talking, David. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.